0: ready three two one go so hey everyone officially welcome to episode 212 of the dash podcast with the one and only pasta Um, and this is yeah i've been meaning to do this one for a while a lot of interesting questions a lot of interesting times we're in um if you have my NFT, you're in my Discord. And if not, you can just join and the bot will verify you. And you go to the digital the um no that was for the last show. The Dash Podcast channel and I could throw that super chat stuff up on the screen. Um but of course if you're commenting and other things, I might see it, but just um if you I did um for my project Dash Growth, I did a crowdfund. And if you donate to that, you can get a an NFT. And get in there. That's part of the part of the sweeten the deal kind of thing. And so, I already did that to a few people today. So there's a few people who are in. So, if you want that, hit me up, and then it'll you know from now on, you know, in the future. So that'll be great. Um, before we get started, first off, I realize it's starting to get dark out there, so I need to uh, turn on this extra light. Uh, something that pasta do doesn't I have to my- worry.
1: When do I get my honorary NFT for being a multi-time guest on the podcast or video show?
0: Um. Well, hold on. Let me get this light on first. I'm thinking about that. Because what? This is at
1: least my third time. Maybe more. Might be my fourth or fifth time on here by now.
0: Mm. Ooh, making that too bright. Yeah. So the way I've been doing that officially has been giving the um, giving the NFTs to – so I have, like, the, the podcast one that I do for people who run the, the rundown show. And then the, the other ones are honorary ones for other things. But, yeah, I, I could definitely make that happen. Um, <laughs> I can't remember if I told people if they were a guest I could give it or just if they supported through, through buying it. They get it for the specific Dash podcast, not for the rest of it. But since you've been on the other, the regular interview side of things a couple times, we should make that happen. All you got to do is um, get an XdeFi wallet, or you could do it in MetaMask as well. But XdeFi is better, and I want to bully them into accepting Dash because they're they're considering it, right? Um. So yeah, get XD5 wallet. I send you a Polygon NFT, and then you go to my Discord, and then you just click the verify button, and it makes you sign a transaction, and then you're in. It's just really yeah, that's that simple. Cool. And if you sell the NFT, you get kicked out. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just that simple. I don't as as a Discord running person yourself, I'm sure you're tired of all the anti-spam bots and things like that, or like how do you. But instead, it's just like, look, if you verify, you signed, you own this very limited NFT, you can get in, and then yeah, no, the that's a s- cool idea. It just it's cool for lazy people, especially. I just don't have to do anything, and of course, I can't wait to have something like that on Dash itself. But like, we don't necessarily have to do every single. Everyone doesn't need to do everything all the time. Um. Anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Before we get going. Um, I got to talk about Radar because they threw me a bag, which is nice. Oops, let me switch to the the V20 product. Just com. So um, this podcast is sponsored by Radar. When buying crypto with cash at ATM is much more reliable and safer than meeting some random person in a random place, which I'm sure a lot of people have gotten shanked from that. So be careful with that. Uh, And unlike an exchange, which could freeze your account, you truly own all the crypto you buy. You don't get FTX'd. Uh, So, you know, with CoinATM Radar, you can find crypto ATMs and other services where you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies for cash. On their website, you can search by coin address if an ATM supports selling as well as buying, and you can also search by geo area. You can also check and compare actual fees at different ATMs. If you want to find out more, head over to CoinATMRadar.com, which is C-O-I-N-A-T-M-R-A-D-A-R.com. All right, so now we got the the fun chilling out of the way. Let's just get yeah, this Yeah, on going. that
1: vein of I wonder yes. what kind of volume those ATM providers end up serving, because I always see them everywhere. You know, every single gas station now it feels like has one of those ATMs, but it doesn't seem like I see a ton of people using them. So I wonder what kind of volume they're pushing through.
0: I don't know, but I do know some ways. Um, I do know some ways to find some of that out. Um, there are some Dash community members I know who do own a bunch of ATMs. So I could have, definitely ask them. And one of my friends works for Lamasu, and I can I think they enabled um, Dash's CoinJoin for ATM withdrawals, or they were thinking trying to do that, which is cool for extra privacy. Yeah, but, that is um, interesting. But they should have an idea of like typical volume. I, I guess what you'd have to do is you have to um, a lot of these. The location tends to be free because a business wants the extra foot traffic. And so if you put an ATM in their store, they're not going to charge you for it. So then it's just... And the ATMs go through like liquidity providers and stuff like that, like exchanges. So I think it's more of a thing of what are your costs to buy the machine? What are your costs to service the cash part of the machine? And just... What is the, what are the fees on an average sale or something, and just like you know, average that out. But I mean, the fact that they're everywhere—it's kind of like Spirit Halloween, you know. It's like how the hell do these people make money? Well, <laughs> yeah. they must because they're there. They're just everywhere. Uh-huh. So, and I, there is some TikTok I watched on Spirit Halloween and how they how it's a fantastic business model that's like really hard to lose money on. And I'm like, okay, wow. Well, after I watch this, I'm I'm not going to doubt anything anymore. Yeah. Oh. I mean, part of the reason they're able to be so successful is because they pay basically nothing in rent.
1: They're there for a month or two, you know, a couple of months, but it's in a spot that didn't have anything previously. So the landlord mm-hmm. is like, well, I'd rather get a couple of grand over nothing.
0: So Yeah. And yeah. It's, they're all independently owned and operated. So if you want to do one, you basically buy all the stuff from the Spirit Halloween headquarters and then you sell and then you just split the profits. And so that's it, like it's, it's super plug and play for people who want to do it. And then the actual company, uh, just doesn't have to hassle with like all these locations. They just send people stuff and split profits and there you go. So that works out. So on the, um, dash side of things though. Um, yeah, so basically dash has been done a lot of interesting stuff over the many years. And unfortunately or fortunately, better for worse, the platform side of things has really taken over in the heavy years of WinEvo, right? And so for those who don't know, which everyone watching this should probably know, but the Dash core team, the main development arm, is sort of split into two, two major projects, I should say unless you want to call it product and all them, like the mobile and all that kind of stuff, but basically core and platform, which is core is the old school, like Bitcoin based, the stuff that people use today, also known as all that dash is today on mainnet. Right. And then there's the platform team, which is building the, you know, loosely Cosmos derived, um, you know, hopefully IBC compatible at some point in the future data stuff with the, you know, the credits instead of the dash and all the other kind of stuff and running on Evo notes, all that stuff. So platform has gotten almost all the attention lately, but um, yeah, just in general, how's, uh, how's Corbin been doing these days?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, really in a lot of ways, I'm thankful that platform gets all the attention It relieves some of the stress off of my shoulders. But um, after a couple of years ago, I mean, the core dev team was in a relatively rough spot. Um, That was right around when CodaBlock had left. Um, It was in a deep part of the bear market. And um, I think it was almost close to somewhere between eight months and a year between major releases at one point. Um, And I'm really proud of where we've been able to get it back to now. Um, We've done really well with the last couple of versions um version 19 had a little bit of a hiccup but um on the timeline and getting stuff done side of things we've been doing a lot better and going from v19 to v20 i don't have the numbers exactly on hand but it was pretty much right where i wanted it to be pretty close to about six months between the major releases um and on top of that we've been doing more incremental minor releases um We've really just done a lot of stuff to improve our processes and make sure that we're always kind of delivering and moving forward with stuff. Uh, more recently, we've started delivering nightly builds um, that, get, um, that get shipped primarily on Docker. Um, mm. And so that has enabled the platform team to you know, request stuff and we're able to implement it quickly and get it to a build that they're able to use very quickly. But um, really, anyone could be using those nightly builds I wouldn't rec- necessarily recommend it. And so they're not published on the Dash Pay Dash GitHub. Um, but there's a, I think it's Dash Dev branches or something, um, GitHub, where we post all of those releases. Um, and then from there, they get pushed over to Docker. So um, anyone could start be using those. But even in that vein of, you know, recommended versions and recommended releases, um, we've done a really good job of, Uh, Working towards delivering minor releases between the major releases and everything like that Um, in the near future, we'll probably be delivering twenty point one. And so I've talked, you know, about this on sprint reviews and everything like that. Um, It's always tough to figure out when to actually release the minor version because we could do it now. We could have done it three weeks ago. We could do it in two weeks. You know, there's no set of features that needs to be in a minor release. It's kind of just whatever we've accomplished up to this point. Um, But going into 20.1, we have some, really a lot of Bitcoin backports have been done. Um, Constantine has done um, a lot of great work since the release of v 20 on doing a lot of backports. Um, We had temporarily let go of uh, one of our developers, uh, Kitty Whiskers. He was on a, um, a mandatory vacation, sadly. But um, we've got him back now, and he's also um, primarily working on backports. And so we've been able to make significant progress um, on implementing a lot of Bitcoin backports all the way up to version 22 of Bitcoin, basically, um, and even a little bit further. Um, but that's going to lead into some really cool features. The Probably the, the coolest ones, there are a couple of really cool ones but one of the coolest ones is um i forget the new bip name i think it was originally bit 151 and then they redid it and now it's like bit 272 or something but um it's basically end-to-end encryption for p2p connections um and so it uses modern crypt- cryptography techniques um and elliptic curves and um so really efficiently and in fact actually it might be more efficient than the current um kind of network protocol that we use to communicate between nodes. Um, So really efficient, really low overhead, but also will provide native encryption between all of the nodes on the network. No need to use something like Tor to, you know, prevent your ISP from seeing your transactions that you're publishing or something Mm. like that. Um, You just will be able to um, push those out. Um, And did you find the bit for me? Yes, um, let
0: me throw know. it. Well, it's still under the 151, but this is um, okay, okay. Jonas Schnelli thing. It says um um this is from GitHub and it says um peer-to-peer services peer-to-peer to peer communication encryption. And um abstract. This bit describes an alternative way that a peer that a peer can encrypt their communication between a selective subset of remote peers. And that's the one you're talking about, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Um sent it to you on I, on the Discord. But it's it put it up on the um screen.
1: Yeah, so I think that has actually been superseded by BIP 324. So I was wrong with my number, but mm-hmm. um yeah, BIP 324 is kind of the new version of that BIP. It's really similar in a lot of ways, but there are just some kind of differences in the implementation and some of the algorithm section, I think, mm-hmm. but this has been something that Bitcoin has kind of been moving towards for a long time. And they finally, basically, um, kind of wrapped up the implementation of it. Um, mm-hmm. so that's a major thing that Bitcoin backports are going to kind of enable and accomplish. Um, one of the other major things, so do you have really something you want to add on that?
0: Really quick on the, the P2P the encrypted thing. So basically it removes the need to do something like Tor or whatever, or I2P, I guess to, to do that kind of stuff, to communicate between nodes, so your IPs aren't your IP addresses aren't necessarily leaked of the node. Now, um, first of all, are there any inherent? Well, first of all, this is not active in Dash or Bitcoin currently. Is that correct? Correct. Um, I think Bitcoin might be at the point where they have an experimental
1: implementation. Um, yeah, and. there might be a branch somewhere that can do it Um, but I don't Mm -hmm. think it's been merged into master it might have been recently they've actually been making really good progress on this recently Mm -hmm. Um, but as of my kind of most recent knowledge it's not quite in Bitcoin yet but there is a lot of movement towards it and um, they're very close are there Um, any
0: major trade-offs for this
1: So no, not really. Um, It was just, from my understanding, a lot of refactoring and a lot of changes to kind of the code base were needed to be done in order to enable this to be implemented. Um, You know, Bitcoin is obviously very old software in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if every line of code now has been changed, but in a lot of ways, it's still very old software that has needed modernization in a lot of different ways to enable you know, supporting multiple different network stacks at the same time, for example, Um, you wouldn't want these new nodes to not be able to communicate over an unencrypted channel so that they, you know, you wanna remain that backwards compatibility and enable people to still communicate with old nodes, um, but also communicate with new nodes using this encrypted channel. Um, So another thing I think you mentioned earlier, This doesn't completely negate or replace something like Tor or I2P, um, or even kind of a VPN for that example, um, that will actually, you know, change the IP address that the node you're connecting to sees. Um, Mm -hmm. This BIP does nothing for that. All that this BIP does is create an encrypted channel between you and the node that you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Um, So your ISP or someone like that in the middle can't listen in and see what's happening, but the node that you're connected to might still see that, you know, this is your IP and you sent this transaction. They might not know that you sent it, but they might have a good, good, you know, assumption that you sent it if it was the first time they saw this transaction.
0: So yeah, so um, basically for snooping there might purposes, still be reasons for snooping purposes. Yeah. They'd have to actually run their own nodes rather than, um, rather than just ISP just collects everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, so is there, so if you already do Tor and I two P, uh, is there any? Does this do anything new for you, or is it just it's like a half? It's kind of like it fixes one problem, but Tor running it over Tor solves yeah. two. Well, it depends. If you are using
1: Tor and you are only communicating two nodes over Tor, um, then it doesn't really change anything. Um, however, if you're just using Tor as a proxy where your data, you know, bounces through three nodes on the Tor network and then it pops back out on the clear web, then there is a benefit to this because at that point on, you know, let's, let's be honest, probably if someone's running a, a Tor node, someone's logging that data um, right. and looking at that data, I really wouldn't be surprised. So um, having this would um, improve the privacy in that situation. But if it is a proper Onion connection, where you're connecting to an actual onion service, then there's no real change. Although, mm-hmm. it is, probably will actually be a little bit more efficient. Um, this new protocol, I think, is a little bit smaller. They were able to shave a couple of bytes off here and there.
0: Um, but yeah. Yeah, and so generally speaking, so I mean, that's, so that's a great improvement. But generally speaking, um, backports. I know there's been a discussion on backports for a long time, and obviously. If cool stuff like this is upstream, that's great. Now, as far as is there, is it becoming more and more difficult to backport from Bitcoin because of divergence in the code bases, or is it still pretty reliable to be able to do this? It's still relatively um,
1: it's it's still pretty doable. Um, the parts of the code bases that are pretty distinct, yeah, it's pretty tough and. Sometimes, you know, backports just don't really happen in those areas as much, Mm -hmm. really. Um, But I even have a script that um, I run every week or so. And it just tries to backport stuff automatically. And Mm -hmm. in the past month or two, I've probably done 100, 200 backports just using that script. And it takes five minutes to run it and then compile everything. So there's a lot of stuff that merges in without any conflicts whatsoever um which is
0: definitely very nice yeah well, that's pretty fantastic it's so um i especially like that whole um uh, privacy improvement part because that's something that's very very big uh in i think a lot of people don't really think about how bad crypto privacy can be today if you don't use it the right thing the right way and so Um, let basically, what are some of the more important things that have been done in core up until now? Like not, we're not looking forward yet, but that might have been missed or as in the average person is just like, all right, well, we got V20, which was supposed to be for Evo, but it's not. And like people know that there's Evo nodes now and, you know, but then that big gulf between deterministic instance end kind of like every single transaction and then today there's a lot of murkiness in there for the average person, the average user doesn't really see a lot of those changes and things that have happened during that time period. So what are some of the the hidden gems of improvements and things that you can think about that have happened in that time that you wanted to highlight? Yeah. I mean one of one of the things that happened in V twenty that was um
1: very good to get accomplished, in my opinion, was the removal of Sentinel and moving all mm-hmm. of that into core. Um, Sentinel was created a long time ago, and basically no one on the team had a good understanding of how it actually worked. Um, everyone kind of had a decent high-level understanding, but mm-hmm. none of us were... I mean, Eugene was probably there when it was created, but besides Eugene, none of it's us the were there the when magic, it was created. The magic was written. <laughs> yeah. Um, we haven't actually had to maintain it. It has just kind of done its own thing and it's done fine. But um, uh, yeah, being able to deprecate and get rid of Sentinel and pull that into the core C++ code base uh, was definitely um, very nice. Um, there's a good number of stuff on like the P2P level that um, the mobile clients use to be more efficient about different stuff. Um, being able to get diffs between um, different master lists and stuff like that um, that has kind of been introduced over time. Um, well, I mean, one of the relatively major things that was done pretty recently, although this was partially done through backports as well, was um, being able to have multiple wallets loaded, um, being able to switch easily between
0: multiple wallets, um, everything mm. like that. Um yeah, that that's something that I've taken advantage of a lot because, um, you, know, without, you know, for work, right, for when I've been using Dash for especially business purposes, um, I use Electrum a whole lot in the past, especially when I had to do spreadsheets of payouts when I was doing the marketing hub stuff. And the spreadsheets of payouts, I could literally copy and paste a lot of stuff right into Electrum and then just do the payments from there and like, like batch it all in like a transaction or two. And after Electrum stopped really working for the, temporarily because the previous developer took off uh, and before it started working again, like it does now, um, I switched to using core for this, right? And so I'd already used core for my own personal thing, but so it helped to have the work wallet and the, the personal wallet in the same thing where I could just switch between them pretty easily. So personally for me, that is, that's been a nice help. Um, one thing on the, I would maybe on the negative side that I thought was a minor inconvenience, but it turns out some people it could have been a, a bigger inconvenience is the separation of a coin join tab into a completely separate thing. And so, for B, it just means I have to go to a different tab than the regular send tab to use it. However, um, I've heard from people using. Um, spritz a lot spritz finance to pay all their bills and stuff with dash in particular this use case but i'm sure it happens with others where they pay right from CoinJoin funds from the core thing to pay all their bills or top up some prepaid card or whatever now when you go into the invoice screen of spritz and you hit open with wallet it will input that all into core like as far as the the address and the amount and then even a little note like a little memo of like what is the purpose of this transaction so people can file it a lot easier with their accountant but it puts it in the send tab and so then they have to manually copy and paste it over into the coin tab because they want to use coin join whereas if there was a simple toggle in the send tab that was like use coin join or whatever they wouldn't have to do that or something and um i don't know what do you what do you think about that experience have you had a similar experience
1: yeah, um, I haven't had that experience with, like, you know, opening basically from a URI-type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely could see how that could be frustrating. Um, yeah, I, that honestly, that shouldn't be too hard to resolve. Um, we might be able to add a button or do something and be able to... Um, you know, if CoinJoin is enabled in the settings, automatically move kind of all of the kind of information that you've put in over to the CoinJoin tab. Um, I know kind of the original inspiration behind this was to try to better segregate CoinJoin funds and non-CoinJoin funds. Um, a lot of times if you, you know, commingle them at all, it can hurt a lot of your privacy guarantees. Mm-hmm. Um and so we wanted to avoid people from mixing and then sending with a normal send transaction in a way that might end up compromising stuff that they weren't realizing was being compromised. Um, but definitely that user experience is probably more than I would like it to be. So um, we might be able to investigate that and get something figured out
0: there. So just an off the just a immediate brainstorm of that, it seems like if, if there's just a button in it, to make the fewest kinds of changes possible, maybe if they're just a button in each of the send screens where it's just like, say you mistakenly start writing something in the coin join tab, that's meant to be transparent or vice versa. There could just be a set. You use coin join instead. And it just flips the tab to the other one and inputs all the info into that one in both ones. So you can just be like, Oh shit, I didn't mean to, to, to I meant to do this in the coin join and you just hit a button and it, puts it over there and vice versa. I don't know. Would that be easy to do?
1: Yeah, exactly. That is kind of the, the idea. Um, just, yeah, add a button to move the information between the tabs, basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That could be good. Um, so that's cool. I definitely like that. And then obviously the, the treasury expansion was a, a core thing that happened recently. And it's not something that anyone, any end user really has to care about, but, uh, people who are getting paid by the treasury now there's there's more of that so so that's cool um what are some other big heavy hitters that have gone kind of unnoticed over the last couple years yeah um
1: i don't remember when the governance tab got implemented but that's something that you know a lot of this stuff kind of blends together for me i forget when we actually implemented a lot of this stuff Mm-hmm. Um, but the governance tab is something that I would like us to improve. It's just not a kind of major priority, but, um, it's something that allows you to, um, take a look at, um, the, the proposals, you know, authoritatively from course perspective, see kind of how many votes it needs, all of that kind of thing, easily open it up in, um, whatever the URL that the proposal points to, um, yeah. Um that's that is an area of core that I would like to get better from a user experience perspective. Stuff like creating proposals and additionally creating uh masternode objects and you know really a lot of the functional- functionality that something like DMT does. Um I don't really see any reason why um a lot of that stuff should be outside of core. Why you have to go to org in order to create a proposal. Mm. Um, a lot of that stuff really should be inside of Dash Core. Um, yeah. But it's not a major priority for us. So something I would like us to continue moving towards. But
0: um, yeah. Yeah. Something that's a a couple other things. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Core Wallet. It works really well. Um, a couple things that could one thing that is a little bit frustrating is the lack of a qr code scanner and it seems very strange <laughs> as a thing to complain about but sometimes i have to send funds from a core wallet to a mobile wallet and before there's like usernames or anything there's just no easy way of doing that unless you just have a static address in your address book which i also don't want to do is for uh-huh. obvious reasons and there are some wallets that are some desktop wallets that aren't for other cryptos, maybe they're maybe not full node or whatever, but they do have a QR code scanner where it'll turn on your webcam or whatever. And if you put up the phone, you can get it into the phone pretty easily. Whereas now what I have to do is I have to use some encrypted messenger to share the address from my phone to the computer and then copy and paste. It's it's annoying. And so a QR code scanner would work un- unless it's deemed that just like, just send to a username guy, you know, whenever that happens. And another thing is the exchange rate, which obviously you have to get some sort of a price feed API or something. Um, I know that Electrum ha- lets you choose yours. So are either of those things that could be feasibly implemented into the core wallet and or is there, I, don't know, I guess maybe a reason not to?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of kind of things there. Um, So, honestly, a lot of it comes down to, uh, like, dependency management. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the kind of API front, first off, um, that would require having basically a, a, you know, HTTPS uh, library. Uh, to be able to call out to web services and get that information back and parse it. Um, so that that did actually exist in Core a while ago uh, mm-hmm. with um, BIP-70. Um, as BIP-70 used that for some authentication, I believe. Um, BIP-70 was deprecated in maybe mm-hmm. version 18, something like that, version 17, somewhere in there. Um, and with that came the removal of um, the dependency that kind of would enable that. Um, and actually the removal of BIP70 was a big, a big reason why, uh, kind of we wanted to remove BIP70 was to remove that dependency. Um, and it's kind of the same thing with the QR scanning kind of ability, that might be more doable, but still uh, would definitely introduce additional dependencies. um, And we try to keep the code base as kind of depend on as few things as we can, um, and especially try to only depend on kind of header-only libraries when possible. Mm. Um, We still depend on boost a little bit. Well. We have a number of different dependencies. I mean, the BLS library is a dependency, but um, yeah, we definitely try to minimize our dependencies as much as we can. Uh, So that's the big kind of concern there. Um, Long-term, the the concept of process separation is one that, um, and actually this is being done relatively significantly through backports where the actual kind of daemon under the hood and the GUI user interface are Mm -hmm. basically completely separate entities that run in separate processes, everything Mm -hmm. like that. Um, Once we get to that point, it might make more sense to introduce these kind of dependencies because then we're only introducing that dependency on the GUI and we're not introducing it on actually compiling the daemon or anything like that. is more difficult to do right now so
0: yeah,
1: yeah all in all it could be done but definitely is non-trivial
0: yeah i mean especially um you know the if you could have a, a set of the username kind of thing i would probably just fix it anyway but you know that might be things you know it's kind of like you know first world problems kind of thing of like not everyone's going to be using the core wallet for everything anyway. And it does work fine as it is. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, um, cause this is something that like, I don't know how much, um, how much this kind of stuff has been um, expressed publicly because I just have heard it um, offhandedly, right? Where about instant send getting changed, right? So, there was essentially there's a new way according to, well, again, this is, this annoys anyone. It's like, okay, (laughs) well then it's, it's Sam's fault, but basically uh, according to what quantum has been talking about, um, it's incentives recently been changed the way it does to be much, much, much more secure is what he said. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about whatever that is?
1: Um, yeah I don't know how much I would say much much more secure um, mm-hmm. so previously there was a potential issue I mean it it would be very very difficult to actually execute but so it's mostly just a theoretical issue but um, where you could have it where you basically send two conflicting transactions at the same time but you specifically broadcast them to members of um quorum and you basically send them, this is going to get technical, I'm sorry, there's no other way to explain it, but you send the transaction at the exact moment that the quorum authority kind of shifts from one quorum to another and so you Mm -hmm. send one transaction to the old quorum, one transaction to the new quorum, but you send it at a time where enough of the members of the old quorum still think that they have authority and are valid and so they will sign and they will create an instance and lock on, you know, the first transaction and then the new quorum also thinks that uh, they are valid because they received the new block um that you know gives them authority so they will sign on the second transaction and all of a sudden you have two transactions that are conflicting with each other that both have instance unlocks mm-hmm. um practically this isn't really a concern in my mind because nobody wins um what would actually have ended up happening is that um at least I'm pretty sure from Core's perspective what would have ended up happening is neither of those transactions would have been mineable. Because each of them conflicts with an instance end block according to like you know, a significant amount of the network. Mm-hmm. Um and so no block that mined one of them would have been able to have like been successful. Um and actually, yeah, I believe both of those instance unlocks could have existed at the same time, and it would have meant that any block that contained either transaction would be considered invalid. Um, but anyway, so the new way the quorums work is basically three-quarters of the quorum always remains the same, and so only one-quarter of the quorum rotates out, um, and so there's no way to get a majority of or you know the two-thirds necessary of the quorum to sign on both transactions, because only one quarter of the quorum is rotated out each time, so there's not enough nodes that you can target in order Mm -hmm. to kind of do this timing attack with. Um, Yeah, like I said, it's technical. Um, Practically speaking, instance unlock has always and remains to be very, very, very secure.
0: but, Which version was this yeah. in? Was it an 18? Oh, gosh. Um, so I, know there's I am a as bad with inst- releases as I am with the names. Um, there's a deterministic so that- instant send thing in the version 18 product brief. Would that be it or is that something else? I think it was that, yes. Okay. Well, I'll just throw it on the screen. And, yeah. If it's wrong, it's wrong. But permissive instant send, blah, 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 dip 22, and advanced hard work support, quorum updates, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, there's always some interesting stuff going on in there, and I don't think a lot of people realize the difference, uh, which kind of brings to the the big old privacy discussion. And one thing that I don't think, let me be super frank, very few people, sadly, use Join private send, dark send, whatever it's been called over the years, mostly because it's been mostly available in the core wallet, the full node wallet, which not a lot of people use, and that's changing. You know, you got um, Electrum is back online with, with the private transactions, and the mobile wallets are working on it, and then after that, it's just going to be the floodgates. But um, there's also been this narrative out there that dark coin had a privacy function and it just hasn't been improved at all. It's just be like Dash hasn't done anything, just completely abandoned that in twenty fourteen, I guess, or fifteen. Um and I personally have seen a lot of differences, a lot of improvements continually done to the function over the years. Uh, so would you mind just breaking down kind of how this has happened like the the differences between the the coin join, the integrated coin join of 2014 or so, with today, like what what all has been changed to that specific functionality in the last ten years?
1: Yeah, no, I mean there's been a quite a bit in how we implement uh, coin join or private send that has changed. Um, I mean the the kind of the the easiest to explain and most obvious is I think the default number of rounds that you mix has gone from something like 2 to 4. Additionally, I think the maximum went from like 8 to 16. Um, I do remember that happening. We also added a new smaller denomination. Um, And I think we got rid of the 100-denomination dash maybe. Um, Other than that, so there have been a couple of other... A lot more technical things. Um, I mean, the, the the nice part about mixing is that it is so kind of conceptually simple that there's not a lot that you have to continually do to it. Um, there are there are probably some ways that uh, private could be improved, but um, even you know from now moving forward. But um, one of the big things that was done was basically and it's been a couple of years now since I worked on this, but um, changed how users will select the inputs that they use in mixing so that it's kind of less... It's just a lot harder to trace a transaction graph. Mm -hmm. Um, It tries to make sure that we choose inputs in a little bit of a kind of more random way. Um, Mm -hmm. It used to be that inputs were chosen more based on like time and so you were able to kind of get a sense of where stuff might be going um still very difficult but um we changed out how that kind of worked and made it even harder to kind of try to trace a transaction graph um looking forward from an actual mixing perspective um one of the only things that I think would be valuable to implement is something like blinding in uh, mixing where um, I think it's also referred to as like charmian corn join maybe mm-hmm. um, but blinding where um, the master node itself doesn't have a linkage between um, doesn't have a linkage between your inputs and your outputs The the problem is, is that's really difficult to implement without requiring that users use Tor to do coin join mixing, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, it's, it's all fine and dandy if cryptographically someone, you know, a master doesn't know that these inputs link to these outputs, but if they see that the same IP address sent them this set of inputs and this set of outputs, then it's pretty obvious to put two and two together there, um, So in order to actually function with a blinding system, you need to have a way to change IP addresses. Um, But honestly, it doesn't... Like, blinding doesn't provide that much value when you're going to be going through eight to 16 different masternodes. Mm, Um, Of course. Sure, one of them could be looking at your information, but all of them almost certainly are not. So... um, Another thing that I think I have an internal document for that um, would be it, interesting to get on more.
0: Comm- Look, quick on the blinding. If you're using Tor or ITP on your mixing node or whatever, does that affect that issue at all? Um, it would, but
1: I mean, then you have an issue of like, you know, enough people in the mixing session need to be using Tor for it to be functional mm-hmm. and helpful. You know, if one person or if one out of the four people are using Tor, then it's not helpful because they see, okay, one person's IP address changed. You Mm -hmm. know, I got one pair from this node, I got one pair from this node, one pair from this node, and I got one pair from two different IP addresses. Mm -hmm. So I can put those together because, you know, they're the only ones left. Um, Yeah, I think in order for something like and Blinding to really be helpful, you would need to do something like either require people to use Tor or use other masternodes in a way that you're able to kind of use those masternodes to change your like IP address in a sense. But um, yeah. So that's 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 one area where um, coin drawing on Dash probably could improve. But yeah, it'd probably be better, but it doesn't improve the user experience. And I'm not really convinced that it provides much of any benefit. Like, theoretically, it's more secure, but I don't know. Is it really? Um, it's it's kind of um, splitting hairs at that level yeah. almost. Um and it becomes a question then of is, is it worth the development time to uh, implement that kind of a system so
0: yeah, of course um, as, as far as like the um as far so one thing that I've thought about with that, and it could be a completely stupid question, but that's why I have a show because no one can tell me not to ask it uh, is regarding pruning of mixing transactions specifically um. So for example, when you have in a Mimblewimble based system, right, it's it goes basically like a coin join for every block and then all those all that transaction all those, that transaction history is just discarded and baked into the kernel of the next transaction. And obviously the mixing transactions, not the mixed transactions, but the, the actual process of mixing are transactions on the blockchain and Is there a way to just end up pruning those from the transaction history in the future at some point? Or is it even worthwhile? Does it do anything good? Well, it depends what you mean by does it do something
1: good. Um, From a privacy perspective, I don't think it does anything good because that information was still available at some point in time. Mm -hmm. So if the FBI or the NSA or something cares, then they're just gonna log that data and You know, it doesn't matter that it's discarded from the blockchain, someone's going to have a copy of it. Um, Yeah. From a kind of scalability and blockchain space perspective, um, theoretically, yeah, it is definitely helpful um, if you're able to kind of prune out all of that data. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no trivial way to do it in kind of a, a native normal coin drawing type situation. Um, right, Coin really aren't any different from any other transaction, and so we need to have the the linkage in the UTXO chain in order to, you know, chain every UTXO back to a genesis block at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of would need some. Member Wimble is an area that I had researched a while ago, but I'm not super up to date on. But mm-hmm. um, you would need some you know, more advanced cryptographic techniques in order to be able to just discard those and prove that everything was still done correctly. Um, So it maybe could be done, but would definitely require a lot of implementation time. Um, And yeah, it's really just, in my opinion, a question about like scalability um, at that point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so as far as, um, I guess where the scalability thing hits is obviously the, the privacy is better the more people are using it, and the utility of Dash is better the more people use the privacy function. And I think we can all kind of agree that it, this is something that should be happen more. More people should use it. Of course, if you have, let's say, you know, you 10x the user base which should be pretty easy. I won't say easy, but it's, you know, considering the number of people that use Dash today, 10X that shouldn't be huge. But then you make them all start and you don't make them, but then they all start using the privacy function. That's a lot of transactions flying around the network. And then maybe do another 10X and now you're 100X the users. So instead of um, instead of 15, you know, 15,000 transactions a day, we have like 1.5 million transactions a day, but then you add all the mixing transactions in because there are a lot of them, like a two thirds of them are mixing for like their regular stuff. Then that starts to become a little bit of a a bloating kind of issue. So maybe in that situation, it'd be more worth pursuing a pruning and mixing transaction approach maybe.
1: Yeah, no, there definitely is a benefit to it. like I said, I, I need to investigate Member one more. But um, it, my belief or assumption is that it does introduce new requirements on new cryptographic primitives that mm-hmm. um, can be scary at times. But the yeah, huge of benefit course. of Join is that it's very simple, um, and very very provable and very obvious what's happening, mm-hmm. while still breaking the transaction graph. So. It has downsides, but
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so let's, before we dive into the the privacy sidechain kind of thing, which is kind of an interesting thing I'd like to explore, um, maybe talk about some other core improvements. Any Anything else on the core pipeline? So first of all, um, is it version 21 that's scheduled to, coincide with the platform release or have we have we gotten there yet
1: yeah so that that actually depends um, so the core versioning is based on semantic versioning and mm-hmm. so it's going to depend on if that version includes breaking changes because mm-hmm. um, if you remember version 20 of dash core included the mnrr hard fork um, however that hard fork is kind of in a hibernation state um where if that hard fork became active, everyone on V twenty would follow along with it. Mm-hmm. Um no one would have to upgrade besides, you know, the master nodes in order to actually trigger the update. Um but um if there is changes in platform that uh necessitate a breaking change in core, then it would be a version twenty one. So far I don't believe that um, there have been, I mean, so far there haven't been any of those breaking changes. Um, there's been no you know, changes to how asset locks are serialized or something like that that would necessitate a pod fork. Um, and so right now, if, plat- you know, if platform is ready in a week, uh, we would release 20.1 that would activate um, MNRR and with MNRR, MNRR would activate platform.
0: Does that make sense? Mm. Yes. It's so, it's only if it takes long enough that there has to be like a breaking change kind of in it. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's not the time frame, uh that dictates it, but if platform has features that require breaking changes. Mm. Um, I mean, we, Core is also continuing to work on our own kind of set of features. Um, primarily non-breaking stuff at the moment though. Um, mm. The only thing that is um, kind of on our radar is potentially um, if you remember, put in a community member putting a pull request for, uh, I forget what I called it, um, the bit, first step towards shared masternodes, multi party payout, mm. masternode, multi party payout. Mm. Um, so if that got merged in, right, that's a breaking change that would require kind of a new hard fork. And so that would have to be released as version 21 um but at the moment um that would that pr would actually necessitate additional changes in platform Mm. um it would require that platform handle a lot more uh potential kind of payout locations in um in evo nodes and so that's extra work on the platform team. We don't really want to give them any extra work. They just we just want them to get done with their current tasks. So, yeah. um, our goal right now is to keep twenty dot one or version twenty one, whatever it ends up becoming, um, as minimal as possible, and only include a set of features that basically platform needs, um, and not introduce anything that would require them to do any extra work.
0: Yeah. So for multi party uh payouts obviously that makes sense from you know it just in, in the beginning i believe masternodes just had one payout address and then at some point they there was another one introduced so you could pay an operator con- con- consistently and then multi-party just makes sense as far as like what that is now as far as like shared masternodes, um so this the multi party thing would be a first part of towards that Um, other than that, how hard is that to implement or how much work would that be to implement like a, a trustless or trust minimized, let's say, um, pooled masternode staking setup?
1: Yeah, it really depends on the details of the system. Um, there are Mm -hmm. ways that you can do it quite simply, um, where, you know, it's just a transaction that multiple people have kind of signed, um, and that it, you know, creates a transaction or it creates a node, and multi, mul- multiple people signed off on it and specified, you know, this set of inputs. Um, so that's kind of the easy way to do it. Um, the harder way is figuring out a much more nuanced solution. So that say if one person needs to pull out of the node, um, they're able to do that without the node going offline or different stuff like that. Um, that's where the complication comes in, um, and so yeah, it really depends how shared masternodes would end up being implemented. There's also there was also a discussion a while ago about um, having almost like a marketplace on platform with different operators, and then people would be able to say, "Yes, I want to kind of contribute to this masternode and different stuff like that." So yeah, it can range a lot between really pretty simple solutions and quite complex, but a lot more featureful solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would obviously massively change the amount of effort that you required.
0: Yeah, so I guess when we're thinking about this feature, there's two angles we can really approach it. One is we want to make it easier or enable more better, more decentralized, whatever, creation of Masternodes and Evo nodes, And it doesn't seem like that's a, pr- a big concern lately. It seems like, especially at this like price point, it seems like, and then the fact that, you know, Crowdnode has a thing for people who really want to do like a pooled thing where, you, you know, for 2,500 bucks or so, you can have a, tr- a Trussell share. Um, It doesn't seem like that's a primary concern. The primary concern uh, of of the other one seems to be, and of course, I'm just making assumptions here from what I see in here, but it seems to be the customer standpoint of people want staking rewards without having to trust a custodian. And right now with CrowdNode, you have to trust the custodian. When you use something like the Maya Protocol for savers, you don't really have to trust a custodian, but it's also funds outside of your Immediate control with some kind of ways, some complexity, and some ways that things could theoretically go wrong. So it's definitely not the same as um, self custody staking kind of thing. So, from a staking standpoint, again, I'm not people have different considerations, but it seems like that's the biggest consideration is to let people stake. And then the marketplace for nodes doesn't come in as much, it's more. Can people stake with CrowdNode and retain their own keys at any amount and easily? That seems like the direction's going in a in a short term. Obviously, if CrowdNode goes away or if there's a um, competitor to CrowdNode, it's just it's fine to just do with a, a provider. But I mean, it seems like that's where the thought process is going so far.
1: Yeah. No. Um, for sure. It's a it's a good discussion to be having on what we want out of shared master, so that we can kind of figure out what a good route to move forward with that is.
0: Yeah, um, what kind of time frame could be realistic for a release of something like this? If let's just say in the next few weeks or month, um, this got prioritized heavily. We're like, oh, we need to have this done. Is it like a this year kind of a thing, or would it be like a well, it's it's like a multi-year kind of project.
1: Yeah, so I think it is on a similar level to something like deterministic instant send or the BLS migration or um, maybe the new quorum type. It's maybe mm-hmm. a little more complicated than that, but um, you know, it would be you know one of the headline features in a major release. Um, so you know, normally the actual development for those takes around. Yeah, you know, some, somewhere around three to six months uh, for the mm. actual kind of development of the feature.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So what before we dive into some of the, the bigger, more structural, more hypothetical kind of things, what kinds of things are on the roadmap or maybe not the, well, first the roadmap, then the idea map for Core over the next, let's just say, couple of years, two, three years. So obviously the... multi-party payout and then the um, potential of trustless shares is part of that, right? What other, and obviously there's a lot of Evo stuff, but what for purely the court side of things is kind of on the horizon over the next two to three years or potentially could be, or you're looking at?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, on a whole kind of organization-wide level, um, you know, the biggest focus is really, uh, shipping and delivering platform um so core is doing a lot of stuff to support that and you know providing new rpcs here and there i think we added two or three rpcs from the last month or so um to assist platform um you know doing stuff like getting a lot of different transactions at the same time so that they don't have to call in to rpc five or ten times they can just call once um so that is kind of our biggest priority right now. Um, and so we haven't done as much long-term planning as I want, but um, there are a number of, you know, really valuable things. There's a lot of stuff that we talked about earlier. Um, process separation is a big thing that I do want us to um, um, kind of accomplish in either version 21 or um, somewhere around that time frame. Well, yeah, basically... I can, I wonder how That's easy this would be to share my screen here. I wonder if I can easily select just, actually, it might be hard on your end, so maybe maybe I won't do that. But um, anyway, version 21, basically the major things that we're looking towards, um, and this isn't a super firm plan at this point is we're moving towards 20.1 and that kind of stuff, but multi-party payout, we talked about that. Um, Mm -hmm. Adding additional kind of functionality into the core wallet, like making proposals or creating masternodes, stuff like that. Assume UTXO support is also a major thing that we're working towards. And that's basically like a bootstrap, except you trust it a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you basically just download a UTXO snapshot and then you're able to start up a node. You don't really have to download anything huge. Um. yeah, so that's the thing we're moving towards um, BIP324 is what we talked about earlier with P2P encryption um, another thing that was kind of a community request, I think there might be a BIP on it, or a DIP I mean um, is basically implementing I think he might have closed it hmm. um, but it was a thing that um, was asked for for a little while which was basically signing the transaction value in on Dash transactions, um, and that allows hardware wallets to sign Dash transactions in a lot more efficient way. And I think chains like Bitcoin Cash and other chains have done this. Um, I think SegWit did something similar for Bitcoin, hmm. um, but uh, that that is a thing that kind of was requested and is on here. Um, another thing, obviously just shared mass nodes in general, um, a, a topic that I had, I, I wrote a document on it a while ago, and it's on our backlog, um, is mandatory masternode onion services. Um, and so this is obviously a thing that would need kind of community buy-in, um, but basically requiring that all masternodes host an onion service um, and are accessible over Tor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that would potentially enable a lot of improvements to stuff like CoinJoin and different stuff like that that we talked about yeah. Um, but it uh, would definitely need kind of community buy-in. Um, uh, I mean, another thing is long-term implementing stuff like LS aggregation over a transaction or over a block level. Um, and, you know, being able to aggregate all of the signatures in a block would be really, really beneficial. Um, yeah. Included in this would probably include basically an implementation of SegWit, which is kind of interesting.
0: Um, The only way (laughs) to aggregate signatures... block weight thing that they got, which...
1: Yeah, yeah. It would basically be SegWit in, like, a real... Like, in a normal way. Um, Mm. SegWit was a weird mix of actually decent technological improvements, and that shove in, like, a a weird 1.5 times block size increase, and, like, just a weird mixin of the two and you know, they had to do it in a really complicated backwards compatible way that we wouldn't really follow. But in order to do signature aggregation, you do have to have the signatures separate from the actual transaction data, which is Mm -hmm. kind of the heart of what SegWit is. SegWit's a terrible name, but segregated witness data, the witness data is the the signature basically.
0: Bringing back segregation Um, 2020s, you know?
1: Yeah. So, um, that's the thing that we would need if we wanted stuff like BLS aggregation on a transaction level and, like, signing um, uh, signing transactions with BLS. Um, we could also implement stuff like shaw and taproot, um, which would be similar to BLS level block aggregation, but, you know, a little bit different. Um, and blinding, we talked about that earlier. Um, I mean, recently already we did... Um, we already implemented having the chain lock in the block. Um, Mm. And now that we actually have the chain lock in the block, it would actually allow us to do stuff like reduce the number of confirmations that you need for Coinbase transactions. Because as soon as there's Mm. a block on top of it that has a chain lock that kind of locks your Coinbase transaction, then you know that it's
0: valid and we could let people resend those or respend those. Yeah, Um, that's that's kind of, it's pretty cool, I think. It's kind of also a very edge case because who receives coin-based transactions it's miners, and master nodes and proposal owners and to just not have to wait as long as they do you know that's great i would think i i would like it cuz sometimes i have gone to pay from a treasury proposal be like oh let me check back tomorrow you know but mm-hmm. for the most part it's i guess it's an edge case thing right
1: yeah definitely is a little bit of an edge case um another a uh, potential item and kind of long-term item is something like a variable block size. Um, basically just scale the block size dynamically with demand. Um, mm-hmm. And so this would mean that, you know, short bursts of lots of transactions might result in, you know, all of them not being confirmed at the same time. Um, but sustained load would be automatically kind of,
0: you know, adjusted for. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um... yeah. What are some of the ways that could go wrong, right? So as far as, obviously with the, um, like what are some, I, it is, I guess this is an incredibly complicated topic, but if you wouldn't mind doing it very simply, um, what are the pros and cons of having a small-ish block size that gets expanded once you start, like manually expanded once you start getting closer to capacity? versus a huge block size, as big as the network could handle it, even though there's like five people using the network or an adaptive type block size. Like why, what are the pros and cons of each approach really quickly?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things right now is, it's really, well, so having a, huge block size but nobody is using it is kind of fine in a lot of ways but it does provide some instability to you know exchange partners and stuff like that where say you know they might have provisioned a node you know of you know a four core node and then someone does Mm. kind of a spam attack and all of a sudden you have these massive blocks and their node isn't able to keep up for example Um, Mm. so by having kind of a a block size closer to the actual usage. Throughput. Yeah. You actually you, you provide some better stability. Um, mm-hmm. the downside with having kind of a manually set block size in general is that let's be honest, the elasticity, I don't know if that's the right word, the response time of core releases is relatively slow. Um, mm-hmm. If we just released one, you're probably waiting six months to get another major release. Um, and we really can't do additional major releases um, that easily. Um, you know, exchange partners and stuff like that kind of get annoyed when you do a lot <laughs> yes. of breaking changes back to back. Um, I know we had some issues with BitRefill at one time over stuff like that. Um, yeah, so. We try to keep it, you know, about every six months, or really, preferably, even closer to, a, you know, one breaking change per year, where they're forced mm-hmm. to upgrade a node, you know, once a year, so that we're not a hassle and a pain. Um, so that's the biggest downside with having, you know, a manually set block size. But
0: yeah. Now, what are some of the ways that a an adaptive block size could go wrong? Cause- Generally speaking, it sounds like the best of all worlds because oh, you don't have to have a you don't have to have potentially giant blocks flying through out of the blue, but then also you don't have to manually increase it if you start needing the capacity. So that sounds like the best of both worlds. But are there some cases where it might be able to be gamed or not work super well for, you know, high, you know, bursts of transaction volume or something like that? Yeah, I mean, we definitely would want to think about it
1: a little bit more um, and have Paul from Research Now Development or Virgil take a look at it a little bit more. It's Paul um, from Research
0: and Development now. He's, he, he's got oh, a hyphenated okay. last name is all the rage these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, we would definitely, you know, we would want to take a look at it a bit more.
1: My biggest concern would be, you know, kind of someone spamming, you know, after, you know, if if usage is relatively low and the block size is like a hundred kilobytes or something, because, you know, normal blocks are 10 kilobytes and then someone pushes, you know, 10 megabytes into the mempool might take a little while for the mempool to clear stuff like that. Um, So that is maybe an area where um, that, that might be a downside. We'd have to think about it a little bit more. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Maybe it,
0: an adaptive just off the top of my head maybe um minimum plus adaptive kind of thing whereas the minimum block size would be 2 megabytes right now and otherwise adaptive beyond that and then manually in major releases in the future that could be increased to like minimum 4 megabyte blocks but an adaptive beyond that just so you don't have this like 1 <laughs> kilobyte blocks or you know like these little things coming through then all of a sudden you have Yeah, to I mean, there'd both, definitely be a set minimum. Yeah, so that's probably the way yeah. to do it because then it works smoothly like now and if there's a giant burst of extra activity into like the many millions of transactions, pretty soon it starts to expand and you have enough room for everything. And it just would be that initial burst might have to wait a couple blocks, but then with instant send, no one really cares anyway. And it, it does expand, but then you also don't have like partner nodes having to deal with much larger blocks than anticipated in a certain, in a short period of time. And then if it starts to be sustained, they're like, Oh shit, this is starting to ramp up. We're going to need to like get a new node or something like that, or fix the node because there's a ton of traffic and the blocks will be getting bigger in the next coming days or something coming hours or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's some other kind of theoretical stuff that might make sense to look into some better kind of block propagation algorithms. Maybe, um, there's some stuff around aggregating instance unlocks to be able to kind of propagate those in a more efficient way right now with our current usage. Yeah. I heard was
0: talking about that.
1: Yeah. Right now with our current usage of instance unlocks, it really wouldn't make any sense. We wouldn't see a benefit from it. Um, But uh, long-term, as uh, instance end usage scales up a little bit, uh, it probably would be helpful to um, batch some of those instance unlocks together and be able to do... We already do kind of asynchronous validation of instance unlocks, and we do them together, but the actual propagation of them is done kind of as soon as we have them. Um, Yeah, yeah there's some stuff there for sure. And then I'm sure a lot of other stuff will pop up that we have to do. So,
0: yeah. So now the subject I really was curious about is this whole extension block type thing. And to give the quick context to everyone about what I was thinking about. So obviously um, there's a lot. Privacy is something that's very important. And, probably in the future i think that in long term i should say the user experience and level of privacy provided by a CoinJoin variant is probably not going to be competitive with the rest of the space it seems like the way stuff is going is is your knowledge proof kind of zk snark whatever acronym you want to throw at that but basically kind of like the zcash approach which right now is super bleeding edge and there's still some things to be figured out with that but it does seem to be where things are going um, and so when I was, there seemed to be in my mind, and of course, people who actually know what they're talking about and don't just talk into a microphone for a living and you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff, um, should probably, you know, correct it. But it seems like one approach, which I've talked with Sam about is when you have platforms, a platform already is going to have a side chain for credits for data transfers. And it seems like y- he thinks the easiest way of doing things might be a a ZK sidechain, especially once you have IBC Cosmos um, compatibility. So that which I think he said it's like four or so devs could be a few month like a few months work after release. So who knows when that when that could happen, but whatever. The point is a an extra side chain on the platform Angle to just handle fully encrypted transactions that, you know, everything's, you know, hidden, so fully shielded. So there's that approach. Now, there there's some problems with that approach some limitations. One is, first of all, is that it increasingly pushes a lot of payments into the purely platform side, which kind of might have the effect of starting to phase out the core side of things entirely. When if everyone is using platform for their data transactions and everyone's also using platform for their private payments and then core is maybe more of a weird settlement layer at that point if it moves too much in that direction, right? Now of course the other the bigger thing is the whole like when Evo thing where I like I remember in twenty seventeen, um there's a site called spend dash which spenddash.com, dot com which I believe it's crazy bro was maintaining and I don't, I don't know how how public his his non pseudo name is, but, and so I was, we're basically sounds like DCG at the time had, or the core team. I don't know if it was DCG yet, but decided not to maintain that site because in 2017, because Evo is going to be out soon. We'll just put it on Evo. And, you know, that was, was a, let's well, four plus three kids, <laughs> you know, that's seven years ago, that's <laughs> a long time ago and we're still there. So obviously we could all go get old and go broke waiting for Evo for all the features. And obviously I think it is very realistic to expect evolution to be released soon for MVP, but just anything beyond that, it's a ton of pressure to put on a lot of dependencies on one small library, so to speak. So, uh um, the idea is could this possibly be um pursued in a core direction and so what i've thought what i've seen done right is um i one of the the more interesting podcasts i did recently was on the main channel whatever was interviewed uh david burkett or david burkett who as far as i know is the lead developer of litecoin or he's like the one big full-time guy and there's a bunch of other people that do other things but he's the guy who got mweb the mimble wimble extension block built into litecoin and it seems like first of all there's no evo on litecoin so you know it's just a, a core thing the way they, that extension block there's one thing that's done it's a very specific to their approach of soft forking and changes right they're not big into hard forks it's the same thing as bitcoin and obviously that's not a thing with dash but they basically process a completely different mweb block in parallel to the regular uh litecoin two and a half you know minute block time whatever thing and you just bridge into the block with a transaction and then all the things are parallel so on the blockchain you actually it looks like there's one big whale where all the mweb private funds are stored and then when people bridge out it comes out of that address and the obviously the m the extension block is a very different because mimblewimble is radically different structurally than a regular mm-hmm. you know, bitcoin based block so that's just kind of how they do that and so what i thought is what if someone did a basically like a zcash style extension block for dash and put it in on the core side. So that's just my surface level kind of idea, but what what all is in, involved with that? What are some of the drawbacks? How feasible is it, et cetera, to just do it, do it in a similar sort of approach on the core side as opposed to, as I mentioned in the beginning, doing it all on the Evo side?
1: Yeah, so one of my concerns with all of these, um all of the kind of enhanced cryptographic systems is I don't actually know how well instance unlocks would work with them. Um right the whole point behind instance unlocks really is you need to know the inputs. Um and then right you lock those inputs to this TX ID. Um mm-hmm. And so, it's hard for me to see how that would work in sometime some type of a extension block system or any kind of you know enhanced cryptographic system. Um, so I feel like that's my biggest concern. But just on a like generic technical level of implementing something similar to, um, you know, implement something similar to Zcash's extension block. I mean, it's definitely doable, Um, you know, there is technology that has been out there for a a good while now that has, um, that it is a bit, definitely a bit more mature than it was a couple of years ago, Um, yeah, so it's definitely doable, Um, would not be easy, would be probably a good bit harder than shared masternodes, but definitely doable. Um. yeah, anything else I can speak to there? Or did I kind yeah. of hit all
0: of the points? One thing on the um, instant send thing that might bear looking into, well, first of all, having not instant send, not having instant send for th- those blocks could, because when you bridge into the address, right, that's still all L1, so to speak. That's still the main chain. And so whatever happens in the extension block doesn't necessarily need to have that. It, obviously the experience would be, all right, it shows up, it's not confirmed right away, like you know the, the main transaction chain. And that's not, I guess that's not the end of the world, but I see obviously why that'd be valuable. On the other hand, I do know that PIVX has instant send or did have instant send and approached a very similar style of privacy. I don't really know where they're at today. I do know that they they have had, you know, zk transactions for a while. I don't know if instant send applies to that or not, but they do have it. I also know that Firo has instant send because Firo has master nodes and has you know has a lot of stuff they borrowed from Dash, and has, you know, the Lelantis you know, Lalantis Spark privacy is, I would say, on parallel with a lot of the, maybe not as advanced as Zcash stuff, but it's quite advanced stuff. So I th- maybe I'd have to talk to them and just see what they, or investigate, see if they handle instance end with that. So if possible, that, that could be potentially interesting. Now, as far as, you know, the workload and stuff, obviously, you know, there's so many things to be to do. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a question of, um, first of all, where does it make sense to do it more? And then does it make sense to have like a completely linear processing kind of thing as far as development's concerned, where everyone's working on Evo or Evo offshoots or whatever, and then so the priority list is kind of scales linearly as opposed to maybe a a team could work parallel and be working on, on this major improvement to the core side while the platform side is doing its own thing. And it's, it's not necessarily all bunched up in the same thing. So first on the on the, the feasibility, on the trade-offs, what would you generally think as far as if, if, let's just say the given was, we're going to have some kind of a private, a some kind of a zero knowledge privacy function in Dash. What do you think about doing it on core versus doing it via a platform side chain? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think it's an interesting discussion. I think probably it would end up making more sense to do Mm -hmm. on platform. I'm not fully convinced of that, um, but I think it's more likely than not that it would be more valuable to do on platform. Um, I think it would be easier to pull in kind of well-made cryptographic primitives, um, you know, obviously having Rust as a build system would be kind of a big improvement in a lot of ways, mm. um, at least from a developer and kind of productivity perspective, um, which is not really something that we can do in core, sadly. Um, I, d- I mean, there's already ways, right, to move funds back and forth between core and platform. Um, and so I think it's it makes the most sense to just yeah, have a zero-knowledge system or whatnot on platform, and then you would be able to pull out of that and then exchange your credits back for Dash, and that would maybe be, I don't know, a couple of state transitions, which you can do, I think, I think you can batch them together in the same block, so it would take, you know, 15 seconds to pull out of a platform or something like that. Um, And then from there, you could, you know, experience all of the benefits of kind of instant send and everything like that with sub two second confirmations on actual layer one. Um. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So it seems like kind of the way forward, it would be better to be kind of a, an L a evo chain type thing, uh, which could be interesting also because from my understanding somewhere on zcash's roadmap is to is IBC compatibility is to be cosmos based i don't know if that's for sure going to happen i don't know how far along it is but it could be possible that a lot of development so like the for mweb um Mimble wimble you know was like an l1 tech for grid and beam and stuff like that and as far as i know they just um burkitt just took it made some significant modifications to it and just You know, it's not like there was like a a whole state-of-the-art thing moving parallel that, you know, was a real thing. But the point is if Zcash persists, so Zcash development persists, it might be pushed into a form that's much more um, familiar for a a Cosmos-based sidechain than L1, UTXO, Bitcoin-based kind of thing. So, yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, Before going to some other stuff, I got... um, TL mentioned in the comments, he just said, um, he says, I'm a little behind, but I heard Coinbase transaction can be instant. Question, our platform withdrawals using Coinbase or is it separate? I thought it was separate, but I just wanted to confirm with you. Um, Yeah, so there's an asset lock transaction or asset unlock transaction that is Mm -hmm. a
1: special transaction of its own type that does not require
0: you know 100 confirmations or anything like that
1: yeah so yes it's distinct
0: yeah and so he had a follow-up question there that i think is sort of relevant right he says thanks trying to he says would sending dash to platform and then withdrawing from platform add any privacy my thought is not really what is what do you think
1: just like that? No. Unlikely. Um Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. So in its current you, state and iteration, no.
0: Now just on that. Uh I guess that's also assuming you deposit, you asset you you lock some dash, get credits, do your stuff, and then withdraw. It's should be pretty linear and therefore pretty transparent but what if you like if someone has a wallet and they get sent they don't have any dash but they get sent credits and they do a bunch of data stuff with credits then they want to withdraw from credits i guess they're withdrawing dash they never had but it's other person's bridge to dash so to speak that they get out of it, get out of it in which case that might be a little confusing to chain analytics maybe but it's not really a privacy function primarily, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it might be a little confusing,
0: um, but from an actual
1: privacy perspective, I don't think it adds, I don't think it removes any information from the actual graph. It might make it harder to interpret because now you have to like, you, you would have to like look at platform and see what's happening over there. Um, mm. So from that perspective, maybe,
0: but yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's just talk about the, the difference between core and platform to kind of like wrap up the big concept. So first of all, I remember obviously masternodes are the first big special node type with Dash and they were like around 5,000 at the peak, I guess. And then because it would be too expensive for every single one of those nodes to run Evolution, they released the HPMN or Evo node as it's now known which is a 4,000-collateral node that runs platform as well as core, whereas the regular masternodes still run just core. Now, I guess the question at that point is what would happen if you decided to, to deprecate the traditional masternode and only have Evo nodes? So now that's basically the equivalent of having every masternode run platform and core but just quadrupling the collateral requirement what do you think that would do hypothetically yeah i mean
1: core would basically function fine um however there is a good benefit to kind of be well with the parameters that we've set for lmqs and everything like that there is a good um balance right now for the collateral size, and so the number of master nodes that we have, and mm-hmm. the kind of usage rate of masternodes. Um, and so if we significantly reduced the number of masternodes um, because we increased the collateral, it definitely would be something that we would want to think about is if some of those LLMQ parameters should get changed as a result of that. Um, yeah. You probably would want to reduce some amount of kind of utilization um yeah i don't know i think having both of them is pretty valuable and beneficial um yeah 1000 doesn't really work well for platform due to storage costs but having the extra nodes and the extra compute on core is is relatively beneficial
0: yeah that makes sense so I guess the final thing then is what about a future where um is there a future where core becomes either much more symbolic or background or gets deprecated entirely? So I guess the question of that is, as I mentioned before, if you have a ZK sidechain on Evo and you have a ton of data storage stuff on Evo and all that kind of stuff, um is there really a need for Core? Like, or could it just be like, all right, we're going to sunset the core chain. We're going to get rid of proof-of-work mining and just be entirely, I guess, proof-of-stake on a master node or evo node kind of thing. Do the 4K nodes is like the only node type and just do all... Credits are now dash. That's now the transaction, the regular transaction and data chain, I guess. And then the ZK side chain or whatever other side chains happen. Is that... I mean, it's a uh, good question.
1: I think think that we'll find that payments are still most efficient on a UTXO-based model. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the other major benefit is having payments and data separated um, means you can have kind of different security requirements in some ways for the two of them, um, or you can just If you don't care about platform data, you know, you don't need to worry about it at all. But if you really care about payment data, you can run a full node and validate all of that information. Um, So I think we're going to see that there is value to keep them separate. Especially, I think, account-based models like Ethereum and, you know, platform are generally less efficient for actual transactions. Um, But maybe I'll be proven wrong there. So I don't see core being completely obsoleted um, anytime in the near future. Who knows what the future might hold, but um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not worried about my job security yet. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, as, as always, you could always just learn rust anyway, you know, when yeah. core rust rewrite. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: I wish, but sad to you almost certainly will not
0: happen. All right. Um let me just check and see if there's any final questions. I don't think there are. Is there anything else you'd want to impart upon the audience um that we haven't already covered? Yeah, I mean if
1: um if there's any features in core that you are you know interested in or want to see happen, definitely advocate for what you want to see happen. Um community feedback is majorly important and you know, the more we see people talk about stuff, the more um we want to implement those features. So um yeah, definitely reach out or talk in Discord about features that you wanna see happen. Um mm-hmm. otherwise, uh be ready for a version twenty dot one sometime in the relatively near future. Don't have a firm timeline for that yet, um, but I do wanna get that out at some point in the near future. So be on the lookout for that. Um and gonna keep moving forward. And we're probably about four to four to six months out from a proper version 21 with significant changes to core, um, including, you know, other breaking changes that a lot of stuff that we talked about earlier in this, this call. So,
0: yeah, yeah, sounds good. Well, where could people follow you and your work other than just following the core repository?
1: Yeah. I mean, dash Bay dash is definitely the best spot to follow everything. Um, I don't really publish a lot of stuff anywhere else. Um, so if you want to see what I'm doing, GitHub is really the spot to be. I'm technically on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm, I'm definitely on Keybase, but you know, that's not really social media. Um, so you can follow me on Keybase and reach out on Keybase chat if you want. But, um, uh, I definitely, um, yeah, I don't I don't have a ton of kind of media or anything where I I share a lot of what I'm working on, just kind of a little bit on Discord and
0: definitely a lot on GitHub, so yeah. Yeah. Um we did have one question, which I don't know if it's really relevant, but we'll just end on that one is basically talk about Multiverse X. Could you take a look at it? It seems very fast and secure. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's relevant to something you've been looking into, but probably not.
1: Yeah, I would definitely...
0: I would probably not be the main person to
1: be taking a look into that, um, but sounds like it might be interesting, so I might try
0: to take a look or fantastic. share it with some other people in the org. All right. Well, fantastic, everyone. Thanks for watching. Thanks, Pasta, for being on. It's always a always nudely pleasure. And um, <laughs> yeah, now it's time for the after party and probably pasta has things to do, but for everyone else, um, it's just a hangout, a post podcast hangout. And I do these about every week after these, these podcasts, but the the one I'm always like committing to is the dash podcast after party where I'm always there for a little while. So um, if you, you want to invite, just message me. Also, if you're one of my NFT guy, supporter people, you automatically get in. So I'll just send you the link to those people automatically and then everyone else. You can ask and then I'll see if you're cool and then I'll put you in. So uh, thanks everyone for watching. Um, don't forget to use your Dash, use your crypto, but Dash specifically before it's too late and run your nose over Tor, buy something with Spritz or Bitrefill or whatever. And yeah, we'll we'll make it. Wag me. This is Dash's comeback year. Let's make it happen, guys. All right, peace out.